This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 564. And the quote of the day is, what you get by achieving your goals is not as important as what you become by achieving your goals. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 564 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope you're hanging in there, and I hope you're not going crazy. Things are starting to open up a little bit, and I'm hoping that this world will be back to normal pretty soon. But until then, we listen to, pod- we listen to podcasts. We listen to the podcasts, and we play the drums. Um, I don't know. Sorry. Coffee to the brain. Uh, this is, this is a, a great episode. This is a re-release of the great Dennis Chambers. The reason why I'm re-releasing it is his birthday was on May 9th and it had me thinking about how great this interview was. And then I looked back and said, oh, wow, I did this interview four years ago and the information that's in here is timeless. We talk a little bit about his health, uh, which was a concern at the, at the time, but he explains all that, but just the information here is timeless. It's Dennis Chambers. He's a legend. And he has some really, really just great information about about not only playing, but but approaches and and playing music versus playing things that are not musical. And first time he heard Tony Williams and all these other great stories. And I'm not going to waste any more time. The dude is a legend. I don't have to tell you much more about him. Let's get into it. The one and only Dennis Chambers. Dennis Chambers, thank you so much for doing this. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, I've had I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while. I've had numerous requests to have you on the podcast for a while. So definitely uh, an honor and a pleasure to have you. And I there's plenty of information out there about you. You can go online. You can read all about you. Um, but I want to build just a little bit of context. I know that you were born in Maryland. Uh, you you grew up on the East Coast. And are you you're you're still in Maryland though, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um and there's there's always there's always sort of a disconnect between okay, you start playing at a very young age and then there's always some gray area and then and then I started playing with Sugar Hill or whoever it is. And but I always I always like to hear the story of in between like how that how that progression happens. You know, how it happened was uh let me see. Like I said I started playing at the age of 4, started, you know, I was in nightclubs at age of six or six and a half. Like legitimate nightclubs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, I, was, uh, I remember uh, there's a place called Peyton Place on Pennsylvania Avenue here in Baltimore City. And on Pennsylvania Avenue, they had all these great nightclubs like the Royal Theater. Everybody played there, man. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody in history played there. Uh, all up and down Pennsylvania Avenue, there they, they was just clubs. It was like it was like Harlem, uh, the Harlem Strip in uh, New York, all the jazz clubs like the uh, Savoy and all that stuff. Right. So playing at the Peyton Place, I saw Miles in there at the Peyton Place, and uh, this is around about the time when they, I think they were they had just finished. Uh, Miles, Miles, no, no, they they just finished. Um, uh, what's the name of that record? I just named it a minute ago. I don't know. Or maybe it was Miles Miles. Was it? Yeah. 
<clears throat> and, uh, you know, at the time, you know, jazz music was like, you know, way advanced. It was too far from my head. But watching Tony play, I knew I was seeing something special, and I couldn't keep my eyes off of him. Right. Because I never saw anybody play like that. I mean, you know, like the right hand had a total different zip code than the left, and the high <laughs> hand had a, another zip code than than the, all the two, other two limbs. It was it was just it was really amazing. And how old uh, were you when you how old were you when you first saw Tony? Say again. How old were you when you first saw Tony play? Like I, said, I think I was like seven or eight or something like that. Or, Man. So, so uh, 60, 66, I was seven. So 68, 67, 68. So we ran in there. I saw him. So I was like eight or nine. Nice. So you're, you're saying you're go you're, you have this strip in Baltimore. You're, you're sort of, uh, you're playing at these clubs when you're, when you're eight and nine years old, you see Tony Williams, uh, and where does it, where does it progress from there? How does that journey happen? Well, I mean, you know, at that time, you know, before I saw him, I was, you know, uh, you know, listening to jazz, but, you know, just listening to stuff on records, you know, at my mom's house, she would listen to everything, rock, jazz, you know, soul, R&B, you know, whatever, you know, and uh, I thought to become a musician, you have to learn how to play all these styles of music. Mm-hmm. Um. So, but listening to Miles play, that was a different type of thing that I was listening to. And uh, that opened my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, because, you know, I was listening to Art Blakey and, you know, Max, you know, where, you know, things are a little bit more polished. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then here, all of a sudden, here comes this guy, Tony Williams, who... Had a little rawness in him. Yeah. I always say he sounded like a freight train. Yeah, yeah. So do you think that there's do you think that there's a difference in mentality now versus then in terms of learning all the styles and having to learn all the styles? Uh you, you know, it does do you do you think people generalize more now or, or, or know all the styles now or just sort of say, No, I'm a rock guy or I'm a jazz guy or No, no, I think there is you know, guys are a little bit more uh diverse. Yeah. You know? yeah. Now, um, then the '60s, anyway, because I mean, you know, in the '60s, it was definitely known that you know, like you know, what a guy did and what he liked, and that's all he did, and that's what he liked. That's you it. know, you would uh, you go to jazz clubs, and guys at the jazz clubs, if you told them that you play soul music, they would, you know, kind of look down at their nose at you. Huh. That's interesting and, because um, I always I always think that. That years ago, you know, like everybody, everybody knew all the styles. It's an interesting take on it that, that I oh, No, they didn't. No. <laughs> I mean, they knew about them, but they didn't, they didn't play them, you know? Right. And, you know, you could look at like some rare footage of Buddy Rich where he, 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 you know, he downplayed, you know, some other styles of music, you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny, you know, I sit there and watch some of those things. I think I have. And he's a, right in a way, the way he, you know, he described it, but the, it was just the attitude behind it. it. Was just weird. Of what of saying like this isn't 
this isn't cool? You know, like this, you know, if you weren't swinging or, or if you weren't a, a serious musician is a guy who, who plays jazz. Right. And plays traditional grip. Have to, right? Yeah, which is true, you know, but, um, but, you know, like you just can't, you know, downplay, you know, somebody like, you know, Jimi Hendrix or Led Zeppelin or Grand Funk. Now in his mind, back at that time, he just, he just didn't like that style of music. You right. know, it wasn't until later, you know, he started getting into a lot of things, you know, because you can hear it in his, his music, mm-hmm. you know, he'll go outside of big band music and, and play an arrangement of, you know, uh, a Beatles song or something. Right. You know, I actually have, uh, I don't know. I don't even know where I got it from. It's like some bootleg, uh, D or a CD of, of Buddy Rich playing like these like funk tunes. Yeah. Funk. You said, yeah. Like he was on, like he, it was some like, funk record do i have it right here i don't i don't yeah know. you need to you need to you need to send that to me i will i will i gotta i gotta where the hell i don't know i have it somewhere i know that i have it somewhere because i found it and i was like what the hell is this and yeah. it was called like it was like buddy rich does funk or something like that i don't know what it was I, yeah i kind of remember seeing something like that but <clears throat> when i heard it uh, if I remember correctly, when I heard that record, it wasn't like funk as we know it. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think you're funk right. As, as you knew it, even then, it was just his version of. Right, it's oh, not yeah, like I, P- I, can, I can do funk. I mean, <laughs> it's not P funk, right? But his buddy's whole thing was whatever he put his mind to, he could just do it, and 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 uh, there was no, he didn't practice anything, you know, right. like that stuff. He just thought. You know, at that time, you know, since he's, you know, he's the the best drummer in the world, he would strongly believe he was the best drummer in the world. Um, at least he act liked it, you right. know. Uh, he could just, you know, whatever he, you know, whatever the style is, you know, he's just going to prove a point. And he could just go out and do it. Uh, you know, he played the drums, you know, uh, but when it came to funk, he some kind some kind of way he missed the whole idea. <laughs> There is a soul, and there's a there's a feeling behind it, right? And in other words, what I'm trying to say is, <clears throat> what I heard was, you know, the music was correct. It was just there was no feeling, right? It was just super square and and yeah, like yeah, yeah. So how? So let's talk about. I mean, I think that funk is something that. I don't know. I think I think it's something that people just sort of they play and they're like, "Oh, that's funky," so I'm playing funk, and which is definitely not the case. So I'd love to get your take on it. Of of sort of, I don't know. How do you how do you define it, or how would you how do you? Uh, oh, funk, funk, funk music is like when you when you you know if it's funky or if you know if it's, if it's hitting you because you know you got it. You know all of a sudden your neck is going, your face look like you like you like you just smelled. <laughs> piece of crap, you know, laying there right in front of you, you know, or something <laughs> foul, you know, like laying there, your face is all distorted, you yep. know, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you got a hump in your back and, you know, you're just going or, you you know, your body's moving. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like when you listen to James Brown, well, you guess what? You're going to be doing something. Something's going to be moving on you. I said, if, if you don't, if you listen to James Brown and you don't move, I think there's something wrong with you. Well, you're dead. You, t- <laughs> you know, 
Yep. Yeah. So what? So I mean, but so is that what you grew up to, though? I mean, did you grow up listening to to all that, or were you? Was that something that you had? Yeah, to, like, yeah. Like seek I said, in my mom's house, we had it all there. But you know, um, so I would, you know, I would listen to James Brown. I would listen to Aretha Franklin. I would listen to Sam and Dave. You know, the Stax recordings, the mm-hmm. Motown recordings. Uh, um, you know. Uh, uh, what's that guy's name? Sam Cooke, uh, Jackie right. Wilson. You know, I would listen to it all. And then, uh, you know, on the rock side of the fence, I would listen to... Uh, I didn't listen to rock until later when, when it started getting hip, you know, as far as listening to, like, Led Zeppelin, Grand Funk Railroad. I wasn't really into the Beatles much until they came out with that White record, White mm-hmm. Album. The White Album. Yeah, that that kind of changed me, you know, changed my whole attitude on them. But then again, that's when they started writing, you know, their own music. Right, right, right. You know, they weren't like trying to, you know, they they didn't have the influences with their, you know, like, I mean, when I heard the Beatles, you know, I was like, you know, all I heard was, you know, like Little Richard and um, who uh, the Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters. Mm-hmm. Later, you know, as um, as we found out, that's who they listened to. Sure, yeah, and it's amazing that you know you they sort of I don't want to say well, I mean they mimicked other styles, but then after a while, sort of come into their own. And, and and I think that any great musician sort of does that. I think if you if you listen to me play earlier, you know, years ago, I would like try to sound like you or or Steve Gadd or somebody like that, and then you know later on down the road, you sort of take all those elements and then say, okay, I'm going to try to create my own thing out of this, pay homage yeah. to the people that came before me, but, but still try to develop my own thing at the same time. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. But you know, but you know, back then, you know, it was, it was really sad, you know, just because of the, the, the color of the skin changed a lot of history about music. You know, I mean, you had your black stations, you had your white stations. Mm-hmm. And when artists, when black artists would go out and, and play, you know, do a tour, they had to play twice a day. They had to play for the white crowd and they had to play for the black crowd, especially in the South. And this is before they had started integrating things. And then when they started integrating things, then they had a, they had a line straight down the middle of the hall and they had, they had blacks on one side and whites on the other side. That's I, like... That just amazes me. Not not only that they did that, but it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, but you know, uh, but and they don't talk about it, right? <laughs> well, they, you the, know, they, just like everything else, they just try to sweep everything under the rug. And then you know, like the black artists, you know, even famous black artists, you know, who played in some of these really great places, they couldn't go through the front door; they had to go through the back, right? It's amazing. And weren't the Beatles sort of? Didn't they sort of lead that charge where they wouldn't play? They wouldn't play all white clubs. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Cause I remember. I, who, I was just talking to somebody about that the other day. Uh, they were saying that that when the Beatles came to the states, they're like, "We're not playing segregated clubs. We're playing. You know, they have to, everybody. Everybody has to be together, or we're not playing." Yeah, which is. It's cool, you know, I, but the the fact that that was 
that was even happening at a the time. There's a there's a guitar player that I used to play with. Um, you may even I don't know if you guys ran in. You may have even known because he lives down in your area. His name's Jeff Washington, um, and he's a guitar player. And he was telling me that like he would go on tour and everybody else in the band was white and he would have to stay in a different hotel than they would because he wasn't yeah, allowed to stay yeah. in in the hotels with him or with the with the band yeah and well same thing well, like with sliding a family stone you know with the band is like being integrated and uh you know they had uh they, had, they were going through some weird things there you know especially back at that time because that's when the the riots were were, were really hot and fresh and and you know that's why Slystone wrote a record called "There's a." Well, one of his records was called "There's a Riot Going On." Right. And you know, like you know, you you know, you you get ready to do a concert. You come out the hotel, and there's like all this. I mean, the world's going going to hell around him. And then you know, with him having, you know, some white guys in the band, and you know, you got these black guys coming up to them and saying weird stuff and the slides like right in the middle of them talking about it. Well, if you're going to, if you're going to hit him, you better go through me first, you know? Right. Right. So, I mean, did you, so you dealt with that a lot with touring too, right? I didn't deal with it. Uh, I mean, cause I was too young. I got you. But I saw it. I got you. Okay. And I remember, you know, getting on, on buses with my grandmother and she had to give up her seat even in the back of the bus, she had to give up her seat because the you know the bus was too crowded. And then you know this this old this this white lady would come up to her and tell her she got to move. So I had to give up my seat. My grandmother gave up her seat, and I'm standing there asking my grandmother, "Why do we have to move?" You know. But no, I remember those days. That's that amazes me. I remember you know what they had like. Uh, Public bathrooms, you know, were were, you know, like they were up and down streets of uh, outdoor malls, and um, you know, for every one black bathroom, you see two white bathrooms, and you could not go into a white bathroom, but a white man could go into the black man's bathroom. Sure. Or they had white and black drink drinking fountains. Yeah. It was really silly, man. I, I, it is silly. It's beyond silly. I mean, and from like as a white guy, I'm like embarrassed about it. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm too young. I didn't have anything to do with it, but I'm still embarrassed about it. Um, so how does that how does that affect you growing up? And and sort of well, do you use it that affect as- me growing up? I mean, because you know, seeing how like I said, with dealing with music, seeing how you know, like uh, I mean, you take somebody like the Beatles or Led Zeppelin. And, you know, like, and then you, you have this, this British invasion thing going on, but yet the British invasion was inspired by, by people that was right in your backyard the whole fucking time. Yep. Yep. And nobody paid attention to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, like little Richard, you know, like Mm -hmm. everybody thought he was crazy, especially now, or especially in the last 50 years, they thought he, oh, let me say 50, yeah, you know, in 50 years, they thought he was crazy because he was a guy who inspired everybody that, that they would rock music, especially all the, all the, you know, the, the, um, leaders of rock music, you know, led, I mean, uh, uh, um, Rolling Stones, the, 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 uh, uh, you know, the Beatles, I mean, everybody. Yeah. 
and Zeppelin, he knew the doors. It. Yeah. And he knew it, you know, and, and, um, they wouldn't give him credit. I mean, look, look, I mean, if you look at his history, look, look how many Grammys he won. Right. Yep. You know, meanwhile, they gave all the Grammys to all these people, you know, that, that, that he taught. I know. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So now but how, he's crazy. But does that like, so when you're growing up, is it like, are you in this position where you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to go pursue this music thing and I'm going to make my own mark? Or is it discouraging to say like, it doesn't matter how hard I work. It's not going to matter because I'm either going to. No, no, no. I, you know, the only, I mean, you know, I just love music so much. Whereas like, I mean, I, I would, if somebody back at that time, if somebody say, Hey man, let's go play in the graveyard. Let's go make some music in the graveyard. I'll go with time. Right. <laughs> you know, um, I saw all the silliness around me, but you know, it was like, um, my, my heart was, it was about learning my craft mm-hmm. and being the best that I can be, not the best that somebody else is, you know, Spence is like, yeah, I saw Billy Cobham. I saw Jack and I saw Tony and I saw all the, all the greats. But my goal was not to be um, uh, better than them. My goal was just to be better, you know, just to you know, to, to be as best that I can be mm-hmm. by what was it, what was in front of me. Right. And now, how does it feel now to be to be spoken in the same sentences as all these people that you grew up idolizing and and admiring? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I mean, because I never thought of myself as you know one of one of them, but. It's kind of funny to see that, uh, you know, uh, before Tony got out of here, I was good friends with him. Mm -hmm. I'm good friends with with Billy. I'm good friends with Jack. All the guys I'm good friends with, you know. Right. Every now and then I'll call him. In fact, I need to call Jack. You know, I've been thinking about calling him for the last couple of days. I'm actually going to have him on uh, in, I think, or the next week I'm interviewing him, actually. Yeah. So... You know, and, you know, like Roy Haynes, you know, like mm-hmm. I never thought in a million years I'd be, you know, hanging out with Roy and, and uh, he's looking at me and treating me like, you know, like one of his, one of the guys, you know? Right. And then Louis, Louis Belson, you know, like he, before he got out of here, he did a, a tribute, he did a tribute record. Actually, it wasn't a tribute record. He named like 10 or 12 of his favorite players, you know, so... My name was among, you know, like uh, Big Sid Catlett and uh, Buddy Rich. Uh, who else did he name? Uh, Elvin Jones. You know, I was in in that 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 realm. You know, mm-hmm. and he also wrote a chart. You know, for everybody. And he, I mean, you know, he wrote a chart for me. It's amazing. Uh, well, and well, so, well you know, deserved. Like, and he's part. one of the heroes that I grew up listening to. You know, right. And I think, you know, I, I think that uh, once you start to go, once you get inside of that inner circle, I mean, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day and he said, everything normalizes with enough frequency. So, yeah. you know, it's it's funny looking forward, you you would say, oh, if I can connect with all these people, it would be amazing. And then once you once you get there, I think we sometimes take that thing for granted. Like the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you, you know, is is amazing in every aspect and but at the same time it's it's now normal for me to talk to guys of your caliber because i've been doing this for so long you know i mean and i don't mean that in a in a 
in a uh, no i know i know what you mean i mean i i uh you know sometimes i you know i remember there were, there were days i'm like boy i would love to meet you know tony williams or 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 i would love to be like tony williams i would love to meet billy cobham i would love to play like him you know and all that stuff right then you get to meet him you know, okay <laughs> what's the next I, turtle i didn't mean it like that <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't brushing you off uh no, and I mean it's 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 cool, you know. Like I mean, I've spent I can't even tell you how many hours and hours and hours I've spent, you know, seeing you play, watching videos online, and you know, mimicking things that you've done, and then you know, to be to be talking with you, it's great. And I and I wonder, I guess, sort of my this is my half-ass roundabout way of saying like, how can you sort of get to these points and and get and reach these goals? And still appreciate it and still continue to press forward, you know, without taking it for granted, without without letting it normalize you and just say, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's just what I do now, you know? Well, for me, you know, like, first of all, it all has something to do with respect. And and um, uh, that's one thing uh, this, this day and age of, as people, uh, as young human beings, they, they don't have respect anymore. Not, not, not a lot of them. They don't have respect anymore. So, and what, what I mean by, and how this all plays, it's like when I, every time I'm on the phone with, with Billy or Jack, you know, there's a respect there. Mm-hmm. And there's a line I, I would, I don't cross. Right. And there's things that I won't say mm-hmm. because of the respect. Do you think you'll ever get to the point where, where there are certain things that you can say and that you, you can't, or is there always, well, a... I mean, I would say, I would say, you know, whatever, whatever, what I feel or whatever that comes to my mind. If they ask me, mm. if they don't ask, I'm not going to, you know, obligate to, to put myself out there to, you know, say some crazy stuff that will hurt their feelings. Sure. Or for them to hurt mine. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, but today's kids, man, you know, like, you know, I'm not going to name some, but I remember one drummer walked up on, on Billy and says, I'm you times 10. What? Uh, you'd be surprised who said that, but <laughs> we're on podcast. I can't name it, but, um, I would love to. Yeah. I, I, and, and, and when I heard about it, I called him up and I'm like, did you really say that? And he goes, yeah. And he was laughing. And I'm going like, man, you know, why would you tell him that? Or why would you say something like that? I mean, you know, this one thing is like, you know, like uh, if you look back in the history of drumming, um, you know, there was like all these different players, you know, like uh, there was more, more a variety of drummers back in the 70s than there are now. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's like, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, when Steve Gadd come on, came on the scene and everybody tried to copy Steve Gadd and whoever the flavor of the month is or flavor of the years, then you find some people that try to copy him. Thanks to YouTube, it's very easy to do this. Right. Um, back then, uh, you, you had all these different players, and it was blasphemous. It was almost it was blasphemous to play like somebody else or sound like somebody else. Really? Like, oh, yeah. you're like copping their style. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, like you know, if you if if you if you uh, 
if you like stacks recordings and you try to play like Al Jackson, you know, like, well, I mean, it's it's okay to play the song like him, mm-hmm. but it's not okay to play, you know, every song or everything you do to sound like Al, Al Jackson. Right. Or Clyde Stubblefield. It was like, you know, you don't, you just don't play like Clyde Stubblefield. And, you know, like when you listen to Clyde Stubblefield, well, you know, the beauty, the beauty that came out of that is, is David Garibaldi. Because David, David Garibaldi loved all the James Brown's drummers, mm-hmm. especially Clive. Right. But, you know, thanks to that, you know, it, you know, it developed his style. Right. But do you think that he, like, verbatim took all their stuff or sort of took all that, was influenced by it and made his own style? No, oh, I know for sure that he, he, just took, he just took influences of what they did and, and sparked his own thing. Right. You know, we all do that. Sure. But, uh, you know, like, for instance, like Jack DeJeanette, when you listen to Jack, you know, you listen to Tony Wims and and, uh, and Elvin Jones. Mm-hmm. And Roy Haynes. So you're saying... That's what you hear, but, but the difference is, it's Jack, and, he, and it's the, his idea and his feeling and his outtake on things the way, you know, the way drums should be played. Right. Which is amazing. Not just copping the style and just playing exactly what the other people. No, I mean, because you listen, Jack. You you know you can't say, "Well, yeah, that's there's Elvin, there's Tony." Right. Jack's gonna like you know play it the way he feel and hear it. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of it. And you think there's less of that happening now? You're saying you think that people are just sort of taking licks that they see on YouTube and trying to fit it into anything. Well, let's see. Let me ask you a question. Okay. When this, this Steve Gadd came on the scene, name name any drummer that 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 don't sound like it. Yeah. Or you don't hear a lick that come out of Steve Gadd. Sure. I I don't know of any. Okay. Case closed. But I, yeah, do I mean, do you, so do you think everybody sounds like Steve Gadd or do you just think everybody? No, they don't sound exactly like Steve Gadd. Right. I mean, but there are some drummers who do. Yeah. And I, and we're on podcasts, I can't name them, but right. they do. Mm-hmm. One guy especially made a whole career, you know, based off of it. Really? Know? Yeah. I mean, we could talk about that if you want, but. No, nah, we're on podcast. I can't. I can't name these guys, you know. Um, but you know, um, if you think hard and and think about you know that question, you'll come up with the uh, you come up with the same answer. Right. Yeah, I think. I don't. I don't know. I I, I wonder if if either. Someone hears something that they really like, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Steve Gadd fan. Uh, I love your playing and there's other drummers that I love their playing, but don't necessarily hear things that they do and try to do it myself. But there's definitely things that you do that I have literally sat in the practice room and shed and things that Steve Gadd did. And I wonder if it's a matter of just taking it too far and then you're sort of so entrenched in this that it just becomes you just become a mirror image of these people that you're shedding all the time. Or if it's a, if, if it's purposely done, like, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to sound exactly like Steve Gadd, or I'm going to go out and sound exactly like Dennis Chambers. I'm not going to try to do my own thing. 
Well, that the thing is, you should always want to play like yourself. Right. I'm or, not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is, you know, it's 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 okay to take influences. Sure. Or things that inspire you to do what you do. Like, for instance, like, man, I'm heavily inspired by Billy Cobham and, and Tony Williams and Jack and, and, and uh, David Baldy and Clyde Stubblefield and Melvin Parker, Zigaboo uh, Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you take all those drummers and, and just, just put them in, in a funnel, that's Dennis Chambers. Right. But the difference is, you know, I'm gonna I'm playing it the way I feel. Right. I was gonna say the difference is it's Dennis Chambers. It's not. Yeah, I'm playing it the way I feel. Right. Right. But these were the guys I was listening to. <sighs> Plus, our Blakey. Yeah, I was lo- loved our Blakey too. And this may be a hard question to answer, but how do you how do you take all of those influences and create your own style without sounding like you're copying everyone? Well, you know, I mean, you know, like I, I you know, like I, I like, uh, let me see, I love uh, Tony Williams' ride. Well, I love everything about Tony Williams. The ride, the the whole concept of the four and the four and the hi hat, the uh, uh, the snare drum, where he placed the the beats, how he feathers the bass drum. Then you got Billy Cobham, you know, the power, the speed, the rawness, mm-hmm. the the flash, you know. I mean, just coming at you, just taking your head off with the drums. I love that. Then you got, you know, Steve Gadd, the finesse, the the uh, the the play something like simple and could be the hardest thing you ever, ever played in your life. You know, <laughs> um, I love that. You know, David Baldy with the syncopation. I love that. You know, the folk syncopation. You know. Mm-hmm. Clyde Stubblefield, you know, I mean, it's like you take all these elements, you know, and then you work these things out, you know, not all at the same time. Right. But over the years, you know, like, you know, like learning some things, you know, you go like, you know, if you're in a rut, you go like, hey, what? I wonder what Melvin would have done right here. Mm-hmm. Melvin Parker. Or I wonder what Clyde would have done right here. Right. And then you play it, but then all of a sudden while you're doing it, you go like, then all of a sudden you start hearing other things because your mind is open, you know, for um, for your heart to come in and go like, well, you know, if I were to do this, I would do it. I would I would just do it this way. Mm-hmm. And by doing it that way, you're building up a vocabulary of rhythms, right? Or right. vocabulary of of uh, feel and emotions. Mm-hmm. Not just shutting off your emotions, shutting off your feel, and go like. Well, I'm just going to play it just the way Steve Gadd did it. Well, that's what I and that was why I asked because I I hear this in in players. So, and I'm trust me, I'm I'm as guilty as anyone. So who am I to kid? But but I see like somebody grooving and they're saying, okay, this I'm playing my Steve Gadd groove, and then I'm going to do my Dennis Chambers fill, and then I'm going to go back to my Steve Gadd groove, and then I'm going to do my David Garibaldi fill, and then I'm going to go back to my Steve Gadd groove. So it's not it's not all fused together of like, Ooh, was that, that kind of like that had this little hint of, of Steve or Dennis or Tony or somebody, you know? And yeah. I it, like, it almost seems like this uh, and not everybody, but, and, and, and that's why I'm asking, or that's why I asked the question, because I'm sure that there's people out there that are listening that love your playing, love Jack DeJanet's playing, love Steve's playing. And they want to know, okay, how can I take all the stuff that I'm learning 
and not just sound like, you know, uh, just like a. Well, you take, take all these things that you you listen to and you're learning, and then you put it you you, you put yourself in a position to like, okay, once you learn that lick, or once you learn that phrase, or once you learn that feel, then you put yourself in a position to go like, what would I do? If if I was the one that was coming up with this, how would I approach this? Mm-hmm. How the key word is how would I? Yep. Meaning it's like how would I feel? How would I do? How do I hear? Mm-hmm. And that's the beginning of developing. Yeah, well, and that's that's how Steve Gadd, every all your all your great drummers, drummers. That's what they did. Right. I th- well, in the seventies, anyway, from the from the seventies, in some part of the eighties, that's what they did. <laughs> you know what I, I I this is a weird comparison, but I think about it like how people speak differently depending on who they're around. So. Uh-huh. If you have, uh, if you have somebody that's around somebody that's really like buttoned up, and you know, and even friends of theirs, or you know, they then they act like they're really buttoned up. And then if you have somebody that's wild and crazy and and all this stuff, then they they sort of talk like that person too. But I think when the, you know, when you find your own voice, you're the same person no matter who you're with. Yeah. You know, and and whether like you can listen to all two hundred twenty five of my podcasts, I sound exactly the same no matter who I'm talking to. And I think that I don't know. That's a weird comparison, but I think of that like, you know, not trying to be like the other person, but taking all of these things that you've you know all of these sayings and quotes and 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 different mannerisms and all these things sort of go into your own go into your own voice. And I don't think that's much different than playing drums. Yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> you didn't have to agree with me. I don't know if that was the best comparison. I mean, when I talk, I mean, it's like when Tony was alive. I mean, I, 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 uh, there are certain things you, I mean, you, when you, when you're around Tony, you, you know, the, 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 how that all works is like, you have to wait and see what side of the bed that he wake up on mm. that day, mm. you know, because you can get a very funny, Beautiful Tony, and then other days you get a dark, weird Tony. Right. That's you know. So that reminds me of him, uh, he never liked to talk about drums that much. No, especially when he first meet you. So you have to like you know feel him out, and then you know like wait until he start at well if he if he open up. Mm-hmm. He'll ask certain questions to you, and then all of a sudden, now then you start finding. Well, then you start talking about drums, right? What did he like? What else did he like to talk about? I mean, he used to like to talk about cars. He talked about everything. Yeah, cars, clothing, you know, drums, uh, life. Mm-hmm. He's yeah, I a did. deep individual, actually. I, I'm, I'm sure, and I that's what, and that's why I asked. I didn't know if there was like, you know, you know what. You know what most people don't know about him is that he was really into this, and he always talked about that, but didn't really, you know, didn't talk about it publicly or anything. But now he talked about. I mean, if you if you knew him, he talked about a little bit of everything. Sure. And he could be he could be the funny he could be as funny as the next guy too when he wants to be. Right. Yeah, um, I never never had the pleasure of meeting him. But I, I tell you, man, I I really love talking to Billy. Billy is Billy Cobb. Mm-hmm. He's got a great insight on uh, things, great beat on things. Yeah. 
Yeah, I had him on here, and he was uh, just deep. He's a, he's a deep dude too. Yeah, you know. This episode is 100% free thanks to the good folks at Promark. And have you checked out their new Select Balance drumsticks? So they give you the option of picking a forward balance or a rebound balance. So if you play rock or country or metal, you may want to check out the forward balance so it gives you enhanced power and speed. Or the rebound balance for jazz and funk and gospel gives you more finesse and agility. The best part is they're made by Promark and they control the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick, which means you get unmatched level of quality and consistency. Plus, they're always paired by weight and by pitch, so you know there is no guesswork in the stick that you're playing. Check them out by going to Promark.com. So I've been checking out the new Sonar SQ-1s, and let me tell you, these drums are sick. They're made out of birch, all right? Why, you ask? Because birch has balanced low, mid, and high ranges, so they sound really, really good in this recording studio, plus they sound great live. Now, this is some really cool stuff. They have a sound stabilizer system, and it's actually based on concepts applied in the automotive industry, and it's rubber to metal, so that you're getting complete isolation from the shell not only that the colors that they come in also resemble high-end automobiles so they're all matte lacquer finishes these kits are insane and not only that they sound amazing to learn more about the sq1 series go to sonar.com this sort of switches gears a little bit but so we're talking about finding your own style we're talking about different styles of music and things like that and the the thing that that amazed me that always amazed me about your playing is like you can go and you can play like all this funk stuff and and all this solid time stuff and then you can go play with like john mclaughlin and joey de francesco and it's like totally out like a million notes a minute and i mean there's a there's a large delta between those two styles and I'd sort of like to talk about that development and, and how that translates into the practice room because people would kill me if I didn't ask you how you practice. Um, and just sort of how do you, <laughs> I mean, they would, they'd be like, well, you had Dennis Chambers on here and you're not going to ask him how he practices. So, uh, so just sort of how, you know, how do you, th- there's so much material there to cover. There's so much, there's so many things that you have to learn to be able to play with John and Joey versus playing with like, you know, Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up listening to the Ma Vishnu, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, there's some deep stories about that, you know, where I saw the original band twice and I saw the band with Michael Walden once. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I saw the Ma Vishnu with, with Billy, uh, you know, you 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 know, you, you heard them, heard about them on records. You go out and you buy the records and it just blows your head off. Right. But now you now you're studying, you know the, the 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 concept, the style, the way Billy played, and then you learn that he's leading with the left hand. Like, oh God, you know, like, oh Jesus, there's another another brick right in front of you, you know. Mm-hmm. Hurdle you have to go over, and you know you 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 learn all these things and blah 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 blah, and 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 just when you thought you had a handle on it, you go see them live. <laughs> and they played nothing like the record. Right. <laughs> it was better than the record. So it's like, then you go like, oh, Christ, now I got to go back to the drawing board. 
I thought yeah, I had it all like figured out. And like, yeah, you know, I used to sit there and listen to Gad play, you know, like uh, uh, with Chick Corea and, you know, like the Night Sprite record and all that stuff. Man, I just saw them uh, at the Blue Note last week or a couple, two weeks ago. Yeah. Sat directly behind Steve. There was, no, I mean, I, if I put my hand out, I could have touched his back. And just like being that close and watching him play, it's like, all right. I thought I knew Steve Gad, you know. Like like yeah. you said, it's like back to the drawing board. Yeah. And that's why I mentioned him. I mean, because he was like that too, you know. Like, uh, I remember there was a song called, I think it was called Sicilian or Sicily. something like that. It was on the, um, I think it was on the Friends record. Yeah, yep, yep, there was. Where he's playing, he's playing this inverted paradiddle. Why don't you know, man, for a week, <laughs> for a week, when that thing came out, I'm listening to it, and I'm like, Man, I gotta learn this. This is really cool lick. <laughs> and I'm going through it and I'm you know, I'm analyzing that I'm like, that can't be a paradiddle. Right. No, it's not a paradiddle. It's too there's something weird about this. So you go through it, you go through it some more and you go like and then you, the end result is Why we got damn, that was a paradiddle. <laughs> it's just the way he he phrased, you know, his his left hand I'm sorry, his right hand on I had. Is it inverted or it's just a regular paradiddle? Well, what made it inverted was the the bass drum because it was a samba bass drum pattern, right, but it was on the other right. side of the beat. Right. <laughs> I, and a whole week go by, you know, like you know, you're busting your brain, and every time I see him, I always mention it. You know, like, fucking guy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, the thing that's always amazed me about him is that he'll take, you know, he'll take something like. Like that, prime example. He'll take a paradiddle and he's like, oh, I can play it 87 different ways. I can play yeah. it upside down, inside out, backwards, you know, off the beat, on the beat, different jump ball points. And it's like, it every 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 time it sounds completely different. And it's like, I'm just playing the same shit. Yeah. Just musical mileage out of like, out of all that stuff. It just, that blows me away. Well, how about this? You know, he was heavily influenced by Tony Williams. Yeah. But... Going back to what we were talking about originally, you're talking about two different worlds. Yeah. Two different concepts of the way people play. Mm-hmm. But he was influenced by Tony Williams. In That's... fact, I don't know if you ever saw that. Um, there's a videotape with, with Tony, Ron, I'm sorry, Tony, Stanley Clark, Chick Career with, um, uh, what's that guy's name? saxophone player god what's that guy's name wait a minute uh i have it in my phone ah <laughs> uh, what's that guy's name yeah 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 hold on video 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 i don't know why i want to see this video he's coming up with sunny stip but that's not right uh, Tony, Tony Williams, Tony, 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 Tony. Who was it? Tony Ron Carter? No, nah, Stanley Clark. Oh, Stanley Clark. Oh, Stan Getz. You ever see that video? No. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a video from Montreal. But anyway, the the drum kit he's playing on is Steve Gadd's kit. Oh, really? And that kit is up at Zolder's office right now. Oh man, I gotta. I'm. 
I'm like, I'm Googling because I'm going to, because I want to put this in the show notes that, so that everybody can check it out too. Is it from 1972? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Let's see, do they, you on here? That sounds about right though, 72. Yeah, I want to, yeah, this is at Montreal, 1972. Stan Getz, Chick Corea, Stanley Clark, Tony Williams. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to have that queued up and listen to it at lunch. Oh, I don't know if this is a video or if this is just the audio. I think it's just the audio. Oh, no, there's, no, no. There, there's is... a video just in case. You know, if you go to YouTube and punch it up, there it is. Yeah. You know what? I think I've seen, I think I've seen uh, one of Tony's solos from this, from this video, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Steve's kit. That's interesting. That's Steve's kit, you know, and, and Steve was like an R, you know, when, when Tony asked to play the kit. Right, <laughs> um, but the kit at that time was it was uh, it was set up the way Tony would would normally play. I mean that's what Gad he was so so heavily you know into Tony at that time. He would set his drums up the way Tony would set them up and and tune the way Tony had them tuned. Huh. Fit like a glove, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, look at look at the difference. Yeah, totally. In those players. Not even the same. Yeah, they're just. And I think that's the genius of it. I think that's what that's what makes you a genius player is taking all these things and say, okay, I'm now I'm going to design my own my own sound out of out of all these people that I studied. So. Well, I mean, you know, then you got like Rick Morata. You remember him, right? Yeah, I had him on the podcast actually. Yep. Did he tell you you know like the stuff that he showed used to show Steve Gadd? Uh, I know that, I know that Steve Gadd sort of cites Rick as, uh, as one of his biggest influences. Yeah. Well, all that, that slick hi-hat stuff, that stuff came from Rick Morata. Yeah. And I got a, somewhere in this house, I, I, somebody gave me a videotape of, um, Gadd asking Rick Morata, like, how do you, you can hear him in the background. There was a, the, the, the mic is on. And there was a tape rehearsal, and you can hear Gad asking, you know, like, uh, "What is that that Hyatt thing you're doing?" Really? And then you know, hear Rick like talking, and then he was like, "Oh, this is this," and he'll play it, and then you know, Gad was like, "Slow it down," you know, and he slow it down, and <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, Gad, you know, he's learning the, the sticking, and then he speeds it up, and he was, "Oh man, that's that's pretty cool," and then all of a sudden he plays it some more, he plays it some more, he's like. Man, you can even do this with it. And then all of a sudden, he's throwing all these other things into it. <laughs> oh, man. Which came out to be, like, the, you know, which made him famous is the Steve Gadd's, you know, hi-hat triplet, snare drum triplet thing feel, you know? Right. The crazy thing is that Rick is younger than Steve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he said that, Rick said that as uh, as people started playing more notes, as he noticed people started playing more notes, he would play less notes. He was like, the more notes everybody else played, the less I played, and the more I got hired. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I, I mean, he, I th- he sort of downplays what he did. You know, he's sort of like, oh, it was just sort of dumb luck, and I just, you know. But, uh, but definitely, definitely left his mark, and then, you know, through, Steve, through himself, I mean, the work that he's done, and then, and then obviously through Steve as well. Yeah, but see, but a lot of people don't know that that body of work about Rick's. Yeah, I know, 
I mean, he was like, I mean, Aretha Franklin, Carly Simon, Steely Dan, James Taylor, Paul Simon. I mean, he's played with everybody. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, well, that's why I wanted to have him on here, too. I, and people don't know that he wrote uh, the theme song for uh, everybody. everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's definitely, uh, yeah, I think he's just kind of like an off-the-radar kind of guy, you know? Yeah, he super, is super nice, comical guy. You know, like I, him and John D. Uh, D. Francesco, uh, uh, John De Christopher, and Steve. Like the three of those guys are like three peas in a pod. Mm. <laughs> They're all comedians. Um, so I wanted we didn't let's touch uh on like I want to get tactical for a minute about practice. Uh, what is your what's what's your approach to practice? I'm guessing that you're you practice differently now than you practice years ago. Um, but what's your what was your overall approach for practicing, or what suggestions do you have for people when they're in the practice room? Let me explain this. I mean, you know, from age what four, definitely mm-hmm. five. You know, I mean, you never. I mean, from five to like twenty twenty one, you never caught me without a pair of drumsticks. Mm-hmm. except for school time, you know. Um, so even when I was in school, if I wasn't physically practicing, I was mentally practicing. Right. Failed a lot of classes because <laughs> <laughs> I had music on the brain. Um, but my practicing routine was is like to play things that I, I didn't know how to play. Mm-hmm. You know, which is music, styles of music. That's what I would practice on. Just learning new styles. And, you know, like, let's say, for instance, like jazz music or bebop. So I would I would take a rod symbol, put it in, in, in a corner of a room, and just practice it and play an eighth notes on it. Mm. At different tempos. Just, just a rod symbol. Mm-hmm. And then once I get the, you know, uh, I, I got the, you know, the feeling of, of what that feels like to play dotted eighth notes at different tempos, then I would bring in the, the bass drum and the hi-hat, huh. you know, and the Just, the so, just to just keep to yourself keep time. Not, not distracted. Yeah. Just to keep time, you know, playing a dotted eighth note with it. And then experiment. Once I did that, and experimenting, experimenting, playing off the beat with the hi hat. Mm-hmm. You know, playing totally against is like it's like for instance, like my using my hi hat is in my left hand. Oh. The left hand is like the answer to the right hand of the of the uh, dotted eighth, or your right hand. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the, like whatever your right hand is, is doing, the left hand is the answer. Huh. Huh. So, like, it, like, talk, like, were you doing specific exercises, though? Or? Yeah, I mean, not specific. It was just that um, the whole trick of it was, not even a trick, but the whole concept of it was, was just, you know, the the left hand just stayed moving. Mm-hmm. And it's playing the other side of the rhythm that the right hand is doing. It's just like playing a paradiddle or a rudiment, in some rudiment fashion. Well, whatever your right hand is doing, your left hand is copying. Right. Or, um, but if you, if you split 
rudiments or uh, split a rudiment up and play like a, a, a what a triplet the triplet feel and then you got your your right hand uh, your left hand playing like an eighth or or uh, uh, like sixteenth notes but three three sixteenths off. Mm-hmm. Oh, so so you're right filling first, you're filling everything in then. Yeah, I got you. So not well, that's what I was doing back then, you know. And it was like this practice, all these weird things, you know. Like and and then the style of music, you know, like far as playing sick, very syncopated, you know, playing, you know, having these ghost notes under the right hand with my left hand, right. That's, and it's the stuff that you don't hear is the trick. Well, that's what I was going to ask. So what happened, like, if you're working on all this stuff and you're ghosting everything in the left, so do you start pulling that stuff out, too? Yeah, well, you know, like, sometimes I'll, I'll like, um, you know, that's why when people hear me play, they, they, they're kind of they kind of amazed that, you know, like, I have all this power, but I can play so soft, too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, like, I'll practice, like, playing, you know, with a stick and a brush. Play a stick in the right hand, play a brush in the left. Right. And yet still you can still hear both of those things equally at the same time. Yeah. And it's just, so it's just I mean it's just from years of practicing that the you know like Yeah. And Yeah, it's a lot of practicing but but you know when I when I turned 21 man I I had to cut all of it loose. You know, a lot of practice I just my practicing routines went down to nothing. Oh, really? Why? Just you were just playing too much. I was playing a lot, you know, and then you know, playing with P Funk. In order for me to keep the gig, um, I definitely had to like cut a lot of uh, practice and stuff loose. I mean, because you know, back at that time, I, I just wanted my hands to be um, precise, clear, and fast as possible. Mm-hmm. When I got with P Funk. That you know, my the way I practice had nothing to do with that at all. <laughs> right. It was just about pocket. It was definitely about pocket. It wasn't about playing. You know, like the having the fastest hands. You know, it was all of a sudden. It was it was just all about music. Nothing but music, mm-hmm. and a you know with a groove. Right. The. Um, what I'm trying to think. Oh, um, Babylon Sisters. So you played on that Steely Dan live record, right? Yeah. The, the stuff that you're doing with your left hand, there's like a, you're doing like these sped up and slow down triplets. Yeah. And I was like, every time I heard that, I was like, what the hell is he? I mean, I know they're triplets. Are you just changing? What are you doing with that? Are you changing the subdivision or just the rate of speed or? Yeah, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm, it all depends Dennis, I'm trying to steal. I'm trying to steal your stuff. I got a gig tonight. I'm trying to steal. I mean, this. every time we played it, I would play do a little different things with it. But I was I was subdividing some things. Um, just the 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 mess with Tom Barney, the bass player, right? Because Tom Barney is like that. That dude is like he's a he's a serious lock. Yeah. You know, you just can't, you know, you could do all kind of crazy stuff and he'll just be right there. He's like Anthony Jackson. Mm-hmm. 
when you know when it comes to time. I mean, you can. I mean, I, I you know I'll play like uh, you know some kind of some kind of uh, ostinato polyrhythmic thing. You know, just the best with them at sound check. You know, doing a solo of Asia, and he's still he's still there. You know, like other bass players, they would just gave up. <laughs> They're like, I'm done. But you did it live yeah. on the record too, though. No, nah, but it wasn't. I mean, you know, in rehearsals, we would like really go deep go into out there. it. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's stuff that you couldn't do on record, if you know well, what I mean. Sure, sure, sure. The uh, I I mean, I just remember hearing that that years ago, and it was just like, and and the reason why I brought that up was because you were talking about how you play so powerfully. Like, if you look at like the solo that you did on Josie, right? And mm. is it Josie? Yeah. Um, is it? yeah yeah and so there's all this like powerful stuff you have all these roles and powerful you know powerful stuff around the kit but then but then on babylon sisters there's all of that the ghost note stuff that you're talking about and it's like super like sometimes you can't even hear it unless the volume is turned up but it's just like these really quiet precise tripleted ghost notes and it like it just not only proves the point of what you're saying about the power and the finesse but uh but just like if if cats want to hear that that like those two tunes definitely show stark contrast of your of your playing in one one performance you know yeah so I know your stuff man I know your stuff <laughs> well when you listen to like somebody like John Schofield's like those records we did like Blue Matter mm-hmm. and where you know what 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 happened there is you know now you got an engineer who's 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 like you know? Every time you play something soft with the left hand, you know, because you're trying to create this mood and vibe. Well, he's gonna bring the snare drum up in the volume. Right. <laughs> uh, you're gonna bring this the, the snare drum snare drum up in the track, you know. And it's like, oh man, that's not what I meant to do there. <laughs> now I sound like I'm just some dude who's crushing the snare drum loud. <laughs> yeah. But when we played it live, then you can actually hear where it was going or what I meant to do. Right. Right. And I mean, that, that video is, uh, what's the name of that video that you guys put out? A uh, serious moves. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I'm, I got a link to all this stuff too, because I want people to, to watch this stuff and check it out. Uh, me and Adam Deitch were talking about that video. Actually. He talks a lot about, he talked a lot about you in the interview that we did. Uh, about how much you influenced his, his playing and things like that. So we, we were talking about that video. Yeah. Um, there's there's one other. Uh, I mean, I I want to talk a little bit about, uh, and I I want to respect your your privacy with this, but about the health scare that you had, and and sort of the 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 misnomers and a lot of the rumors that passed around on the internet, and I I think that you spoke to it a little bit, um, but just wanted to sort of you know to to go down that road a little bit with you, and like I said, respecting your privacy, of course. Well, I mean, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't mind talking about it. Um, I had, um, I had a little scare where, well, first of all, I mean, uh, you know, I I was borderline diabetic, Mm -hmm. you know, borderline being a diabetic. And my doctor told me that um, I have two options. One is to lose the weight 
Because um, at that time I was taking pills, but the pills were you weren't like uh, they weren't like the cure all, right? And my doctor was seeing, you know, was saying like you can beat this by you know like it's you're at the beginning stages of it, you can lose the weight, um, beat diabetes, or continue taking pills and then the pills go into insulin. Uh. It is shooting. I'm like, oh boy, there's no bringer there. I'll lose the weight. <laughs> right. So, one thing about me is like, uh, when I get into something, I really get into, you know, these things. So, I started eating, you know, like, you know, really healthy foods and, and drinking a lot of water and, um, you know, taking less intake of food. Mm-hmm. I got down to where I could just eat a, like a little sauce of food, like, or better yet, I could, you know, I'll order a burger and I could only eat half of it and that's it. Huh. Um, you know, where would, you know, like at dinner time, I would have like a nice plate of food. Now, you know, I would just have a sauce of food. Right. And, and couldn't eat all of it. And you weren't hungry. So you the were weight, just, just off, the weight was just falling off like crazy. Right. And um, I suffered with a bad case of acid reflux since the 70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, a bad case of it, man. I mean, there were times I would wake up running, you know, running to the bathroom, and I'm thinking, like, that's how they're going to find me slumped over a toilet because I couldn't breathe because I'm just choking. It so bad. Well, just choking oh. because the acid, it would always, like, it all depends on what you eat during the day. Oh, was or that especially bad? at a certain time of night, it uh, it would always hit you when you're relaxed or asleep. Sure, it would just come up and just go down the wrong. It would go down your windpipe. Mm-hmm. All that acid oh. down your windpipe, and you can't breathe and you're choking. So, like there was a many nights, man. You know, like on many a mornings, you know, I'm like just just running to the bathroom. You know, just just choking. Um, but, you know, went to a doctor, like, what, my doctor cured me from it, like, 12 years ago, maybe 13 years now, but when they cured it, uh, the damages were done to my, uh, to my, um, esophagus line, mm-hmm. and in my esophagus line, I had all these, like, pinholes in it, didn't even know, Wow. and... The first sign uh, of uh, of it was I was leaving L.A. Just finished this tour with I think it was graffiti. Yeah, it was graffiti. And I was going home, and I said to, to everybody, "Look, I'm going to take six weeks off. Don't call me. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing. I'm not accepting any gigs." Right. And as uh, the next day, I got a got a ride to get to the go to the airport. I had this 65-pound suitcase. I was pulling out the back of this SUV. I'm standing in an oiled grease area, and it's and it's like a, a mist of rain coming down. When I pulled that suitcase out, I'm slipping and sliding, twisting, and mess my back up, and um, I'm falling, and I'm trying to you know trying to keep myself up. But when I realized I was falling forward, I braced myself for that. So what I did was I bent my knees to fall forward. As I did that, I'm falling backwards now. 
So I'm falling into traffic. You can hear cars like hitting brakes, hitting the horns. And when I fell, I still held onto the suitcase and embraced myself for the impact. I held my breath. When I went down with that extra weight on me, I fell fast and heavy, hit the back of my head. I saw a flashlight, and I just went out. Whoa. I was knocked out on the ground with this 65-pound weight suitcase on my, my rib, bottom of my ribs, and my stomach. But what happened was when I embraced myself by me holding my breath, when I hit, um, my esophagus line opened up expanded and went back down again but when it expanded it opened up the loose holes and i was bleeding out from the inside didn't even know it oh so when i went to uh, they took me to uh, the hospital and i couldn't stay awake because i kept passing out it's like i remember waking up or, or coming to getting off the ground this old gentleman pushed the suitcase off by suddenly because I remember feeling like I was underwater and I'm trying to get to the surface and I'm not coming up fast enough. Ugh. And when I opened my eyes, there was a crowd of people, you know, just standing around you like, Oh my God, is he all right? I can hear what's going on. And I'm pointing down to the suitcase, like get it off, get it off. I can't right, get it off right. me. And uh, this this old gentleman that came out of nowhere and just pushed everybody aside and pulled the suitcase off. And I took a couple of gulps of air as they were pulling me up, and I went out again. And um, I remember coming to again, and I went out. And then the next time, the next time I came to, I'm in an ambulance, and I'm looking around trying to figure out where am I. Right. And then I went out again. And then I came to again, I'm, I'm, I'm laying there next to a CAT scan machine. Actually, I was laying on the CAT scan machine, and they were waiting for me to come to so I could sign the document, you know, saying that, you know, they could do this procedure. Mm-hmm. So I signed it, and uh, they put me in, and I went out again. When I came to, I'm in a wheelchair. I'm in a wheelchair. Uh... He's looking around like, what's going on? They were like, well, we're waiting, uh, waiting for a room to clear up so we can put you in it. I'm like, what are you talking about putting me in it? What are you talking about? I'm going home. They're like, no, you can't go home. Huh. So now they, they get me upstairs. I stay awake during this time. They get me to a room. They put these tubes in me and all this stuff, you know, and, and um, uh, my senses were like, like amplified by, by 15, meaning that if I had to go to, you know, like sometimes you have to go to the bathroom, you go like, I, I can hold it. Right. And you know, I don't have to go right now. Well, it went from, well, I can hold it. I don't have to go right now. Oh wait, I got to go right now. You know? Right. I was like running to, you know, the bathroom and, and all that stuff. That's the first thing I noticed that was wrong. And when I got finished using the bathroom, I come back, they hooked me back up with these tubes, and I'm telling the lady, like, I think you need to get something. I feel like I got to throw up. In fact, I'm like, yeah, you better hurry up. I think I'm going to throw up. So she comes back with this bag for me to throw up in, and I'm throwing up in this bag, and 
when I pulled the thing away from my face, it was blood. I mean, a large quantity of blood in this bag. The lady, the nurse's eyes got big. And I'm sitting there looking at her, and she's looking at me, and she's like, that's not normal. And then she called for my doctor that they assigned me to. Uh, he sees what's going on. He says, quick, take him downstairs to this room. And they put me in this room, and they knocked me out, and they went down my throat on, uh, uh, from the inside. And that's when they discovered I had holes in my esophagus line. So they fixed what was there, what they saw. But then they go through the whole esophagus system. Right. So I come out. Uh, I was there for about a week, you know, a little less than a week, I guess. I fly home. I recoup for um, for the five weeks out of the six weeks I took off. I go back on the road. Everything is fine, no problem. But my white, my weight is just dropping. But I didn't care. You know, it was just you know, it was just you know, I didn't. I mean, I felt great. I didn't see nothing or feel nothing abnormal about any of this. Right. I'm going through, months went by, man. I was like, not knowing it, but I was a walking time bomb. Um, I'm on tour with Mike Stern, maybe like six months, seven months later. And we get to Stockholm. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we played in Stockholm, and the next stop was uh, somewhere uh, in Spain. I can't think of it. Alicante. Alicante, Spain. Where they found me in my room, laying in the floor in my own blood. And when they found me, my skin tone, they said my skin tone had changed. When they got me to the ambulance, I was already in a coma. Uh, when they got to the hospital, they were telling Mike, Mike Stern, Bill Evans that, you know, it's a 50-50 chance. I mean, I... You know, it's up to him whether he's going to live or die. I I read, I mean, I remember reading online that, that you were dead. Well, yeah, that's when, when my, my wife read the same thing. And um, when she got on the plane, she, she didn't know what she was going to get on the other end. Right. And I and and I remember I actually shared uh, your wife's post because it somehow it got it got circulated around, uh, and I shared I remember sharing that for the audience to just say, "Hey, look, he's alive. This is from his wife. You know, nobody really knows what's going on yet, but he's he, he's he's alive. So that's good. So what was the what was the uh, I I want you to continue. But so what was the what was the cause of it? Uh, it was the cause of it was acid reflux, like I said, but, um, you know, they, when they brought me around and, um, or brought me back from the dead, um, uh, I mean, I mean, I had no strength. I, I, I was like, I couldn't even get out of bed. Right. You know, if I'm laying there, I have to lay, if, if I wanted to get out of the, out of the bed, I had to lay sideways, put my leg on the floor, legs on the floor and pull myself up. Straining wow. to pull my body up, my top body, top half of my body up, and then stand there for for a second, make sure I got legs to walk to the bathroom and pray that I don't fall. Well, didn't when you were in the hospital, didn't they, didn't they repair all that? 
Uh, they did what they could there. But they got me well enough to go home where I could see my, my doctor. No, I mean, before that, when they dismissed you and you went on, back on the road and, and they were like, you're fine. Oh, well, like I said, they, they, they prepared, they repaired what they saw uh, where, the, where I was bleeding out from. Right. And I guess there was some other stuff that they missed. Well, it was just the lower part of my esophagus line that they missed. Jeez. Jeez. So then you get home, you have you have no strength, and then and then from there, what do you? It's just the rehab process, right? It was just rehab. I mean, you know, like I had to go to my doctor, and they they went through my whole system and uh, repaired everything from the inside, and then the rest of it was like I had to I had to I had to recover or recoup. You know, I had to you know like not play drums for a year. I mean, not really playing drums for a year. I had no desire to play. To tell you the truth, no. Um, because I had no strength. Sure. Sure. Pearl sent me this beautiful uh, yellow uh, fiberglass kit. I set it up. Um, it was sitting in my living room uh, for all that, all that time. And um, I would walk. I would walk through the house, look, you know, out from my bedroom every morning, walk mm-hmm. through the house towards the kitchen stop and look at that big drum kit sitting in my living room and go like, yep, that's a, that's a drum kit. All right. And then go get me some coffee and <laughs> go to my family room and sit there in my, my, I got this killing massage chair. I would go sit there and just talk on the phone. I would invite people over to come and play it just to see if I would be inspired by, you know, by listening to them. Really? And man, I, you know, it was like, I, I didn't want to have anything to do with, with drums other than owning them. Man, I, and do you think it was just out of frustration that you couldn't play the way that you wanted to? No, nah, it's just I didn't have any strength. Yeah. And, you know, like, for me, it's like, if I can't sit there and just do what I hear or what I feel, then I, I it's nothing. I, I just, like, I don't have any desire. And I couldn't sit there and play what I, what I feel and what I hear. Mm-hmm. I had no strength to do it. So what? And then what all you, of a sudden, Mike came up. Like a year later, Mike Stern comes up. You know, he goes, "Hey, man, I got this gig down at Blues Alley. You know, how, how do you feel these days?" I'm like, "I feel fine." He says, "Yeah, man. Um, you know, I got this gig down here at Blues Alley. You know, which is like right down the road, so to speak. It's in Washington D.C., but it's like 40 minute drive. What do you What do you think? You feel like you uh, you want to make that gig?" And I thought about it, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I'll do the gig. And uh, that was the first time I picked up a pair of sticks in a year. <laughs> no practice or anything? Nah, and people said that sounded better better than ever. Really? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, it has to change your outlook on life. Well, what happened was, by me, by me taking that time off, you know, definitely it was like I was hearing differently. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, like, uh, you know, by me playing all the time, you get, you know, you get in these little ruts, you know, where, you know, um, you're not inspired by, by doing things because, you know, I'll be finished. Like if you play a lot with Mike Stern, or you play with a lot with one guy, you know, at that time I was playing a lot with Santana. Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. I had just left Santana, but those 12 years of doing that, 
you know, I was stuck into doing one thing. Right. And then, you know, but the, then I had to cross between Santana and, and uh, Mike Stern. So I had these two things that I was used, used to doing a lot of. And um, with, with, with uh, Mike Stern's a lot looser uh, of, uh, than Santana, of course, um, and a lot of freedom to do a lot of things, you know, with, with, with Mike Stern. But still, you're playing every day, and you're playing those, you know, you're playing certain tunes, and you have to play certain things a certain way. Right. Um, Everything normalizes but, with frequency, as I, you know, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So, but when I came back into doing this with Stern again, all of a sudden I'm hearing differently, and I felt differently. So that allowed me to play a little differently, and it was like blowing people away, especially my closest friends who knew that I didn't, they came to see me to see what was, what was going to happen because they knew <laughs> I, I wasn't practicing. Right. I didn't even practice for the gig. Right. It was like riding a bike though, huh? Yeah. That's amazing. And I remember walking for the first, that first night back, I, I walked downstairs, you know, uh, getting, you know, walking towards the stage and I'm saying to myself, well, we're going to see what's going to happen now. <laughs> but from that moment on, I, you know, it's, it sparked me or it inspired me to play. Yeah. All of a sudden I can feel it. I can hear it again. Right. And there has to, I mean, is there, is there a new, uh, sort of a newfound lease on life as well? Uh... Do you feel yourself approaching days differently now than you used to, or have a different outlook, or think differently than you used to? Aside from no, nah, my playing? friends always tell me I'm the same old <laughs> crazy guy. <laughs> uh, Maybe that's good. Maybe that you were, you know, before it all happened, you were a, a upbeat, positive dude. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, you, I, you, you, you talking to a guy who loves to laugh, man. You know, I'm always laughing and keep people laughing. You know, with some crazy stuff that I've seen or heard or I, I've shared with, with some of my friends. and Right. That's the way know, to live, some man. Guys like, huh? That's the way to live. Yeah. That's definitely the way to live. So, question about um, about down there in, in the Baltimore area. Do you teach lessons down there? No, I used to. But I got taught of the, uh, the arguments that goes back and forth. You know, guys would take drum lessons and then um, some of the guys, some of the students, they were, they were a waste of my time because I don't like taking money from people, um, and not getting anything, you know, for them not to get anything from me. Um, you know, you know, like I would, what I'm trying to say is, you know, you teach somebody something and you go like, okay, okay the next time we get together, we're going to go over this. Cause you got to go through this to get to that. Right. Then they, they show up next week and you go like, okay, you ready? Did you, did you, were you practicing? Yeah, I practice. Okay. Let's play this. And then they go play it and they go like, man, you didn't practice this at all. <laughs> right. Well, then all of a sudden that's when the excuses, you get all these excuses, the reason why they couldn't practice. Right. Yep. You know, a month of that goes down, and then now I'm like, I'm getting at, you know, I'm getting frustrated with them because then you you start feeling or you notice that 
the only reason why they're there is because they want to say that they took lessons from you and they want to ask you questions about somebody else. Mm-hmm. What your feelings, I used to get this a lot. Uh, how do you feel about Dave Weckl? Or what do you think about Dave Weckl? Why does that matter? Oh, and I go like, oh, and Vinnie Caliuta, they would ask. And I'm like, well, I don't think of those guys. And I'm not saying this in a, in a negative way. It's just that I'm too busy to think about those guys. Right. And I know that I need, I know somewhere in LA, you know, they're walking around. They're not thinking about me. They know they did care. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're friends, right. you know, they, they're about me like, Hey, I wonder what Dennis is doing. But you know, as far as like, you know, thinking about the way I play or whatever, they're not thinking about that. Just like, I don't think about, you know, what they do. Right. I just know that they're just great players. Mm-hmm. Who and then, on? but then when you start, you know, and I'll say stuff like, um, it's not important. What I think of them is what's important is what you think of them. Right. And, and then when I go to, if I answer, you know, my, my feeling on, on, on that, you know, some of these guys, and if it's not what they want to hear, then that's when their argument starts. Right. People don't like the truth. Yeah. They don't like the truth. And then when you go like, um, when you pull out records of, of, uh, certain people that where they got it from, I mean, because, you know, like, this is like, uh, you know, one thing is like, you know, like, well, if I, if I want to listen to that, I'd rather just, I'll listen to Steve Gadd, because that's where they got it from. <laughs> and they go, you think, Steve, you think those guys sound like Steve, uh, Steve Gadd? I'm like, well, what have you heard that, that you, what if, what records have you heard Steve Gadd play on? Paul Simon. What song? 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. That's it? Yep. Out of all that stuff he played, that's it. Right. And then I started pulling out my albums, you know, going to my album, because back then I had a serious album collection. Pull out all these, these great things, and, it, and then when I played them, these things, and their mouth hit the floor. Because they never heard this stuff. They right. think that, you know, these other drummers, you know, were the, the guys who started all of this stuff. <laughs> It's, uh, I'm like now, this goes back to Gad. Right, right. And I, Gad goes back to you know Tony Williams and Rick Morata, and you know you go through the history of it. Mm-hmm. And this is why you know I always tell them you know like man you know like with YouTube, there's no there's no reason for ignorance. Yeah. You know I can see it back in the '70s, but now the stuff is in your face. It's all right there on YouTube. You know if you like if you like your favorite drummer. Okay, it's okay to watch that, but there's a there's all these little little screens on the left or right hand side of that video, and if you click on some of it, you you understand where these guys came from. Mm-hmm. It's that's that's one of the most amazing things about YouTube is you can go on, you can watch a video, and you'll find the influences right there. Yeah, it's like here you go, here's all the you know like that. I mean, that's how I found. Sonny Payne years ago, you know, yeah, like yeah. looking up, I don't even know who I was looking up, but I'm like, who's this guy? And then I was like, holy shit, it, like this, it's Sonny Payne, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's, I, I think I, I look at, 
and I'm gonna, I mean, my opinion doesn't really matter, but I think that I think YouTube is sort of a blessing and a curse because when I was growing up, I had to like seek out this information a lot harder and I valued the information that I sought out. So I had to go see people live. I had to take lessons. I had to, you know, buy, buy VHS tapes or whatever it was to, I had to listen to records and play along with them. Same thing with you. And now I think that, and again, my opinion, but then I would love to hear if you agree, but I think that now the information is so readily available that it's like nobody dives into anything because they can just quickly jump to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing without having to like dive into it. Well, you know, the, 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 the sad thing about young, younger people, nobody want to do, nobody know anything about history. They don't want to, they don't want to know about history. Mm-hmm. And the history is right there, right there in front of your nose. And it'll help you import. It'll help you understand why some things are the way they are. Well, to understand, help you understand why that guy played the way he plays. Right. You know, mm-hmm. but if you don't take the time, just like you took the time to watch the video, if you don't take the time to click on that little icon to the left or the right of another video, well, then you'll never understand. Right. You'll never get the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm with you. And the reason, the reason why I asked about, about lessons, because I know that one, a lot of people would like to study with you. And, uh, and two, I, I was like, I'll, I want to go down and study with you because we're close. So that's why I asked. Um, but I understand why you don't, because I talked to, who was I talking to? Uh, Jojo Mayer said the same thing. He said, a lot of times people would study with me and one, they would ask me about all the stuff that was already on my DVD, or I found out that they just took lessons from me because they wanted to meet me. Yeah. And he said that that, that wasn't really a, uh, a good use of his time and he didn't feel right taking people's money for it and everything. So he just stopped teaching. So. Yeah, that's exactly why. Same, same reason. Yeah. So. I mean, because I could find other things to do with my time. Sure. You know, like hang out with my family or, you know, just hang out, just, 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 you know, just hang out in a quiet room. <laughs> Watch paint You know, dry, I play drums it? for a living, so I, I, I don't need to hear drums all the time. Right. <laughs> I agree. Especially with me sitting behind it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Well, listen, I want to... Uh, Speaking of JoJo, man, JoJo's another one that I, I like listening to. I, I got so a new uh, new respect for him. I, I had the cover for him uh, with this band called uh, Trace Elements. Mm-hmm. And man, he sounded great on this, this, this freaking record. Yeah, JoJo, JoJo can play his ass off. He's so... Uh, he's a world-study musician, man. He... he uh, He's a bad boy. Yeah. And he is, that dude is intense. Intent. I mean, when I met him, like, I went to his house to interview him, and we walk in, he, like, answers the door, like, three-piece suit, you know, like, <laughs> it's, like, 10 o'clock in the morning, and he's like, do you want a beer? And I'm like, it's 10 a.m. And then he just looks at me like, I don't I don't understand what that means. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, and then we're we sit down and, and it's documented in the podcast, but he's talking about the music business and he's like, he goes, <laughs> he goes, let me ask you a question. If there is a cat that's dead on your carpet, what do you do with the cat? And I'm like, uh, and he's like, you don't try to revive it. It's dead. <laughs> and he's like, you just let it go. 
and move on. <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay. And he was like, that's how I feel about the music business. <laughs> and, <I was> like, <laughs> and he's like staring at me like through my eyes in this three-piece suit. Right, like, right. Su- I mean, super nice, like hospitable and was like really cool. And then after that, we like went out and just like walked around New York City and a total awesome hang, but like super intense, you know? <laughs> Yeah. But he takes it seriously, man, and I, I respect that. I respect that immensely. So But it was just funny as shit, man. He's like that dry not even humor, but just like this he's so serious that it's almost funny sometimes, you know. Which I like. So um but I, I, I wanna I wanna we've been on for a while and I wanna be cognizant of your time, but uh I, I wanna thank you so much for, for taking the time to sit here and chat with me again i mean you've you've been are you remain to be one of my one of my idols uh and i've studied your playing and i've been listening to you for years so it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast to be able to chat with you and i'm thankful that you are back in good health and you're playing drums again and it was it would have been a big loss for the for the drumming community uh had you not recovered so so I'm just I just want to say thank you for doing this and and I'm so happy to hear that you're doing well again. Thank you man. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And I would anytime you would like to come back I would I would love to have you back and if I'm ever in in Baltimore I'd love you love to buy you some lunch. Well there you go. I'll hold you to it. All right. I'm down there a lot so be careful what you wish for. Hey, well just give me a call. Okay. I definitely will. Awesome. All right now. Dennis, thank you again so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you have it. The one and only Dennis Chambers. Check out the show notes. Go to drummersresource.com forward slash session five, six, four. Also, please do me a favor. Rate and review the podcast. I feel like we haven't gotten a rating or a review in a while up on the up on the iTunes, as they say. So if you have a second, do me a favor. Leave a rating. Leave a review. It literally takes you know a minute and a half to do, and I would greatly appreciate it. It just lets people know that they should be listening to this podcast. Also, uh, my other podcast, Uncut, I released a new episode, and I'm going to be back to releasing episodes uh, every other week with that show. So if you want to check that out, you can just go to my site. It's just nickruffini.com, or you can search in iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, all that stuff. It's just uh, it's Uncut with Nick Ruffini. You can check that out. And that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.